Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we're bringing back one of my favorite guests that talked to us back in 2020 about some of the really incredible ways that we can use kitchen scraps to create new foods. Um, Julia Skinner is our guest today. She is the author of Our Fermented Lives and is a fermentation enthusiast, educator, writer, food historian, and founder of Root Kitchens. She's won many awards for her writing and her work with fermentation, food history, and community work. And she's also been the only writer or culinary professional to win not one, but two 40 under 40 awards in the same year. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's really great to have her in my back of the woods. And so great to see you, um, Julia. And uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you too. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on a beautiful book. I love Our Fermented Lives. So amazing. What can you tell us about about your book and kind of what led you to write this this book? Well, thank you. It's um so the book I wrote it because I found that there was a lot of there's a lot of books on fermentation out there, more and more of them every every year, which is wonderful. But there wasn't one that really tried to get its arms around this really big, broad global history. Um, And so I started out thinking about it in terms of um, geography. And so like, oh, let's talk about the ferments from, you know, this region or that region. But there was so much overlap that I ended up organizing it um, topically instead. So healing, community, stuff like that um, instead. Well, one thing I really like about your book is this idea that comes across and the idea is really that history and traditions are not just resigned to the past, but that we today are an active part of creating them. And I'm just wondering, I know it's, it's hard to wrap my head around, like, we're going to be part of the history of the future, right? So how, how do we contribute to these shifting food trends? So... This was something I started thinking about with this book, and then it's it's one of those things that's like really ended up resonating with a lot of people when I talk with them. Um, because yeah, I think all of us are kind of like I'm not like a part of his future history. Like I'm you know I'm kind of just here doing my thing. But it's like hmm, we all contribute to that, um, and so it really it really is uh, you know we get we have so many different uh, traditions that are passed down to us, right? And so many different things that, uh, like say with fermentation, I mean, fermentation was really how I started thinking about this because we have so many fermentation traditions that we still have, but then many that we've probably lost too. And so we get to decide kind of of these things we get, what we keep, what we don't keep, what maybe we would modify. And so we're, we're kind of sitting at the nexus of the past and the future and and helping to channel or not channel um whatever from one place to another so we're we're very actively shaping future history whether or not we realize it yeah that's such a good point well another thing i really i really enjoy in the book is your description of like i think you have 42 recipes in the book Mm-hmm. And one of them that caught my attention was on a product called Uji. 
Uh-huh. Am I pronouncing that correctly or not? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you tell us? I mean, because this is something that I I've never tasted myself, and I'm wondering, you know, maybe some of our listeners have, but it was just really fascinating to me. So maybe you could walk us through that particular ferment and what got what caught your interest about it. Yeah. So it's. Uh... I really liked making uh, that one, and then there's another fermented porridge in there as well. And there's there's a tradition in many different places uh, to ferment porridges. And so the reason why we think this started, I mean, who knows if it was accidental or intentional, but one of the benefits of it is that it provides additional nutrition and the fermentation process reduces cooking time, so you don't have to use as much fuel. So that's kind of the like quick and dirty, why do we ferment our grains before we cook them? Um, but this particular porridge, across uh, Western Africa, there's a lot of different uh, fermented porridges made from sorghum, millet, and of whatever grains people had. And they're, they're really delicious. You basically ferment the grains for like a couple days, uh, a few days, and then you cook it down just like you would any other porridge. And it's like, it's it's sour, but it's not like aggressively sour. It's like, it's really tasty. Like I, I obviously tested the recipes for the book, but I still find myself making them a lot, especially in the winter. Nice. So when you say sour, is it is it sour like to level like a pickled vegetable, like a lacto-fermented vegetable or not quite that much? Not even that much. Um, mm-hmm. It's, gosh, it's probably, it's, just like a little bit tangy like if you were to imagine like stirring some yogurt maybe or some sour cream Mm -hmm. in but like just a little bit um yeah very nice very nice and then you also get into um well there's so many different recipes I'm trying to think of others that like I really (laughs) enjoyed well I mean I guess Let's start with the recipe. Maybe we'll start with this question because I'm I'm often inspired by in my work by things that I experience or taste or, or see people using. Like, what were some of the things that that you've experienced in your own travels or in your kind of taste testing adventures that 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 inspired some of these recipes? So one of them, um, there's a, a a sauerkraut that has like papaya and green papaya and stuff in it, and that was inspired by me going to Thailand. Um, so right before the pandemic, um, I I went to Thailand and I didn't know it was like the last major international trip I was going to take for a while. <laughs> but, um, but while I was there, I was like, oh, there's like this really good green papaya fermented salad and it's like spicy and salty and sour and it's like all the things you want and it was so good so I came home and I started making that and playing with like variations of that really really good so that's that's one example um you know and some of them also just came from like reading too so um the fermented oats the sowens um that making that was a product of looking at I was like well what what traditional Scottish ferments are out there and found that one and started making it that's great you also make a condiment in the book that I think most people may not realize is fermented and that would be ketchup yes (laughs) so so, like I just think that's amazing I mean I, I think 
a lot of people probably know how to make their own mayonnaise. It's easy to kind of mix together the egg and, and oil and a little bit of acid, but but fermenting your own ketchup, like how does one do that? Is it hard to do? Well, so it's not, but it's actually, ketchup is such an interesting story because nowadays, so you can make it fermented and I have a recipe for that in the book. A lot of what you buy is not fermented anymore. It's just made with vinegar um, to emulate that flavor. But ketchup itself, I don't know if you want me to like go in the whole soapbox about the history of it, which I yes, think yes, really I cool. want to hear the history. Of ketchup. <laughs> I, I think I, I'm speaking for my listeners. Hopefully, they I think they want to know too. Yes, yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> um, so the history of ketchup is really interesting because it did not include any tomatoes for like the first several centuries of its existence. So ketchup. Uh, originated in England, but it was based on uh, Chinese fish sauce that had been imported in, and English folks were like, wow, this is so good, so full of umami, even though they probably didn't use that word. Um, and, um, and they're like, wow, so savory, so delicious, we love it. Um, and so they started trying to make it with other things they had around. And so we get so modern Worcestershire sauce is based on kind of this idea too. And so we have like mushroom ketchups, walnut ketchups, like all just kind of different things. Um, and I also have a mushroom ketchup recipe in there. And that's basically like the mushrooms, you let them like do like a really brief ferment and then you cook them down with um, vinegar and uh, some other stuff. And it's this really, like really good sauce. Um, and I'll save those little mushroom bits and I'll put them in things too. But the tomatoes didn't come about until, oh gosh, like the late 1800s, I think. Um, wow. So they were and, in Europe for a couple of hundred years. Cause I guess they arrived like into fifth, you know, into the 1500s. Everyone thought they're like poisonous, like stay away from this, you know, yeah. for a while. I think so it was the scary. Spaniards that started like, let's make this into gazpacho. Yeah. Yeah, so it was at one of the world's fairs um, that somebody started making, I believe it was Heinz, um, started making uh, tomato ketchup. And people, and like, because tomatoes have some of that umami in them. Uh, and yeah, that that caught on. And so now this like, this like sweet and sour condiment rather than just like purely savory and sour um, condiment has come about and the tomato one has supplanted all of the other ketchups now, <laughs> at least here. Yeah. I mean, I think that's incredible because I mean, I wasn't aware that there were so many different types of ketchup, but I certainly heard of kind of fish sauce. And, you know, as you were speaking about this kind of these light ferments, I was in my head thinking also of garum from ancient Rome, right. Where they had like the buckets of fish parts that just kind of fermented with salt water. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's so interesting because we don't um, we don't think of um, yeah of fish sauces being a European thing at all, really ever. But it was such it was I mean ubiquitous there, like it was it was used all the time. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, um, let's see. I have so many questions. <laughs> see which way, <laughs> which way to go. Um, why don't we start with? an exploration of kind of how one takes remnants of food. Like fish sauce is a great kickoff point. Your arms are right. Cause this is not like 
the meat of the fish that you would normally eat as a meal. This is like the leftovers. It's the stuff that we would normally toss out, but is being used in this other way to create a value-added product. So maybe you can kind of walk us through that and why, you know, as an example of why fermentation has historically been so incredibly important to really gain the most out of our different ingredients. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, fish sauce is a good example because it's it's often made with like these little tiny, you know, sprats or something like fish that you're not going to sit down and be like, yes, I want a plate of these. (laughs) And um, yeah, and I would encourage for people who like really want to get nerdy about the fish sauce uh, sauce stuff. um, Sally Granger is like the fish sauce person. Um, She's great. yeah, but it's, I mean, fermentation is so great because it's, you know, if we go back to the the thing that Sandra Katz says of it being the transformative action of microbes, if we really kind of, you know, tune into that action of transformation, it is a way for us to turn something that feels unusable, maybe doesn't have the right texture or flavor or whatever, and allow it to become something else. So, um, you know, a good example would be um, and this this isn't necessarily historic, though people throughout history have done this, but the name is modern, um, which is Crouchy, which is something that uh, Sander Katz makes and now is kind of something that a lot of us make in our kitchens and is basically, you know, here's like my beet tops or here's my carrot greens or here's the peels from this, uh, you know, these carrots or these beets or these, you know, pick a thing. Um, and you kind of, you make it in the same way you would make kimchi or sauerkraut and kind of uh, ferment it together. And yeah, I think that's, you know, and in so doing, it turns it into something really delicious and special. Um, yeah, but I mean, infusing vinegars, um, yeah, pickling things. I mean, there's just so many different things that we can do. Beverage making. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of one of my goals. Well, my goals kind of, developed they refined after taking the workshop that i did with you and sandor pre-pandemic um to all the listeners they had the most amazing workshop um with, with sandor and julia and other fermenters kristen Choki. i mean just doing amazing amazing work and it opened my eyes to really the way the household now we're already doing pretty well because we compost for my garden and we have a little pet pig that eats the other veggie scraps. But I'm like, but with fermentation, we can take it that other stuff, right? So we're really reducing the amount of of organic waste going into landfills and creating, you know, more and more gases that are influencing the climate. Um, I guess what might be useful to listeners is to get some get some insights from you also and what are some of the things that you do all the time to kind of, you know, with your scraps, we, we talked about crouchy, but are there other things that you do? Do you also compost? I'm assuming. And like, yeah. I mean, compost yeah. is also a fermentation in a way. Yeah. Fermenting things for your garden. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not, not to eat. I mean, yeah. Um, what else do I do? So I do, so I kind of have this pipeline of um so i will make something like an infused vinegar fire cider like i usually use a lot of scraps in my fire cider which is like a for people who 
are not familiar with it is this like medicinal infused vinegar that's got just like it's packed full of like peppers and onions and garlic and like all like it's like pungent um but it's really good <laughs> my, my kids call it my nasty medicine <laughs> It's got like cayenne and garlic <laughs> and honey and yeah and vinegar, but it it like those sniffles go away pretty quickly. <laughs> they do, yeah. It definitely knocks out like if you've got something, it's it's helpful. Uh, yeah, so I'll take I'll strain that out, and I'll take those solids and instead of composting them, I'll put them in my dehydrator and then grind them down. Um, or with any other infused vinegar, other beverages, if I make something like I ferment something I like the flavor of, but the texture is off, my dehydrator is my best friend for that because then I can make a seasoning blend, um, which it turns out make very nice gifts. So most of my family every year gets my kitchen scraps as their holiday gifts. <laughs> That's so brilliant. Watching, That's I brilliant. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I've bought any of them a gift in in a long time. Um, <laughs> well, it's a very healthy gift, I'm sure. It that's, is. That's great. Yeah, and so that's like that's a big one. Um, again, so we've talked about infusing vinegars, um, beverage making. So I make a lot of just natural sodas. Um, so I know a lot of people who have soda streams and things, and that's like that's great if you drink like a ton of soda. I don't really, and so, and I always have, you know, berries that are going soft in the fridge or, you know, whatever, and so I can just ferment those and make them into something new, um, rather than uh, chucking them out Fantastic. in the compost right away. Well, tell us about this. So I'll talk about one of our co common, really shameful things is I'll get these beautiful blueberries and they get stuck in those little containers mm -hmm. in the very back of the fridge, and so... How do you, when do you capture them before they start to actually mold? Like just when they're soft and how do you, how do you actually ferment them? Do you just put them in water or how do you get the ferment started? So, um, so I would say if they have visible mold on them, I wouldn't use them. Um, you know, everybody's tolerance for risk is different, but that's, you know, that's my, like, if I'm like, if it's like the whole container is fuzzy, I'm like, oh, like this is probably not going to work. <laughs> it's already been taken over by other microbes. Um. But if you get them and they're like squishy and not moldy yet, you can totally use them. And basically what you do is you put them in a jar, another food safe container, and you add some sugar. I, you know, like if you look at like fermented soda recipes online, you know, it, it can vary. I don't usually use that much sugar. I don't find I really have to. Um, but basically what the sugar does is makes it so the yeasts that are naturally present on those berries kind of wake up and have a lot to eat right away so they can crowd out whatever else might be interested in growing in that jar. So add your sugar. I Oh, I don't know. Like, let's say like half a cup to a quart or quarter cup to a quart. I don't know. I don't measure it most of the time. <laughs> and fill it up with water. Put the lid on. Give it a stir or shake like twice a day. Let it ferment for um, for a few days, and then you can put it in bottles. You uh, so you add a little bit of what's called priming sugar to the bottle, and basically what that does is gives those yeasts a little extra food so that they create the CO2 that carbonates your beverage. And so you make sure that you have a sealing uh, bottle, so that has a screw top, a swing top, whatever. Um, and a narrow neck and so that captures those bubbles and so you can then uh 
have soda after another day or so and then just put it in the fridge. It's amazing. I've I've made sodas before. I kind of cheated because I used champagne yeast. You know, I added it to I just made some different teas, you know, fruit teas and then added the champagne yeast. But I also exploded a ton of bottles in my pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm not a master of this technique yet. <laughs> there was glass everywhere. Um, so how do you how do you keep your bottles from exploding? <laughs> I'm guessing it was probably too warm. They were too happily growing. It was what happened to me. Yeah, I so I tend to because I so if you were to go into my kitchen right now, there's actually like splatters from blueberry wine that I made and let I and let carbonate too long, like all over the ceiling. I spent hours on a stepladder trying to clean it off, um, and it's just stained now. So my ceiling just looks like that. <laughs> That's so, like, great. <laughs> I don't know, do something about it, <laughs> paint it or something. But um, yeah, I mean, you can either cut down the fermentation time. Um, I usually, so once I put it in bottles to become soda, once it starts to show really much sign of, or any sign of bubbling at all, um, which is like, just like a day or two, it doesn't take it too long. Yeah. And then I'll just put it in the fridge. Um, because yeah, I mean, same, I've had plenty of times where I've, I've been like, oh, it'll sit for like three or four days and then I'll check on it. And it's, if not exploding, it's very happy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny, like, you know, I've, you know, I've done a lot of work in the Balkans on kind of traditional foodways. And one of the things that surprised me is I would find people using wild fruits for, for these ferments, which isn't that surprising because they eat a lot of wild foods. Um, but what surprised me is they were using like old Coca-Cola bottles, like the mm -hmm. plastic ones, like basically the, you know, the ones you get in the supermarket, the mm -hmm. liter, liter, or is it one and a half liters, whatever the size is. But, um, and they would call it, you know, limonata, it's their, it's their sparkly beverage, but it's not actually a store-bought soda. I guess they drink it and then they make their own sodas using the same bottle. But it, I do, I, I tried making some ferments in like a plastic container like that. And it was nice because I could squeeze it mm -hmm. and feel when it was like really, really ready to, to go in the fridge or, or you know. Yeah. yeah, when it's like it has no give at all, and you're like, oh, this, yes. is, this is. I'm going to open this one outside. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bomb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if like the first few times I made soda, I did that too, so I could, like, like you said, like learn kind of what it looks and feels like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. Well, okay, I want to move on to our next topic, and that would be food security. So I think when, when people think about food security and hunger, we don't always think about what's happening in our, in our, in our own communities. And, you know, I don't, I get the sense in the U.S. that we are so reliant on industrial, like the industrial food system. We have very little access to land for people that are hungry or are impoverished and need assistance. There's very little access to land to grow food there's really little access to education and how to process food, like in the home, how to really cook or how to store food. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Like, are there ways that knowledge on fermentation could be used to help improve health and nutrition? I mean, even, even here in Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's, 
it's something you know i i found it interesting because i have uh several online classes that are around food waste and fermentation and all of this and i like i sold more classes during the early months of the pandemic than like any other time and i think it was because it was the first time people realized oh wow the supply chain here might not always be infallible like there is a possibility i won't have food um and so you know, as as kind of a product of that, I think many people started to think about, oh, maybe I need to know how to make these things, grow these things, um, extend the shelf life of my food. Uh, fermentation, you know, we talked about food waste and fermentation really helps you cut down on waste. So from kind of a practical cost saving perspective, as well as an environmental one, that's really useful because we're able to, um, preserve our food but also stretch what we do buy um and then fermentation of course as a preservative too so um keeping helping your food last longer making it so when you buy fresh vegetables and you pickle them you'll still have access to them or you know if you infuse greens and vinegar or whatever the case may be um so that that i think is a very important thing and you know and it's not expensive either you know one thing i really like about a lot of like traditional food making techniques and particularly fermentation is like i just need a jar and some salt and some thyme and i have this you know very nutritionally dense healthy delicious food um i don't have to like you can buy special equipment if you feel like it but you don't have to um and I think that, you know, when I think about teaching community members, that's something I think about every class that I teach is taught with those very, very traditional, like, here's the basic materials, don't buy extra stuff if you don't want to, just keeping it accessible. And I think that teaching those skills to people both helps them stretch their budgets, get better nutrition, especially in food deserts where people, we have a lot of food deserts in Atlanta, um a lot of places where people have to really trek to go get groceries and so that really helps them make the most of it yeah and and you're you're 100 percent right i mean i definitely got that message from your workshop as well i mean i mean i remember one tip you all gave just because one of the challenges is keeping your vegetables under the water line so mm -hmm. they properly and i remember you know during the workshop, we learned you can just basically take some rocks, stick them in a mm -hmm. bag, boom, there's your weight. Yeah. You don't have to like buy a fancy, you know, glass weights of different sizes to fit your specific jar. Like it's literally yeah. rocks into a plastic baggie. Done. Yeah. <laughs> or a plate or a, yeah, yeah, like whatever fits. Like I use, I have like certain bowls and plates that'll get pressed into service and put on top of things. Uh -huh. um, yeah, some people use like a plastic baggie full of dried beans. Like nice. there's, yeah, like there's so many different, just like whatever you have that can uh, keep things out of the water. Yeah. yeah, even just folded cabbage leaves. That's what I keep my yeah. um, my sauerkraut under the brine with. That's amazing. Yeah, we had a um, we've got another episode we recorded recently with Sandor, and he was giving us all the tips on how to make you know good pickles. And, um, and a lot of it has to do also is just access to fresh ingredients. And so on the show, I mean, we interview all sorts of experts. We had um, Alexis Nelson, 
on the mm-hmm. show recently and she's like awesome. the, the 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 goddess of, of of foraging you know but i'm i'm just thinking of you know if you just get a few pieces of knowledge of knowing how to okay a few plants that you know in your neighborhood you can forage here's how to make them you know last longer mm-hmm. um just those pieces of information you've basically got free food for a longer period right mm-hmm. yeah i mean kind of i i think a lot about that um you know, here in Atlanta, I mean, we have so many wild foods throughout the year people can get, like, the chickweed and, like, dead nettles and violets in my yard right now are going gangbusters. Like, I have so much food out there, I don't need to buy greens for a long time. <laughs> yeah, one of my neighbors has her lawn is full of violets. For some reason, I don't have them on my lawn, and I don't treat my lawn with anything, but I have no violets. No. And so I have been very tempted to go scamper around her yard and just... <laughs> fun uh, colored lemonades and things yeah you totally should (laughs) do it at night too (laughs) i I should probably ask for i'll always ask permission before you go on somebody's land that's the first rule of safe foraging i guess yeah it's a good Um, rule (laughs) all right so we've got food security um and you mentioned this issue with energy in sustainability, which is, I think, another piece of the conversation we should consider, you know, especially when you think about fuel consumption, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're so privileged. I have, you know, electricity and gas in my house. I don't have to go out and collect firewood or, you know, create coal or things to cook my meal. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, like, like we were talking about earlier, fermentation really helps break down the starches, break down some of the tough, uh, you know, holes in grains, things like that. It really helps to make it so that you don't have to cook something as long because it's pre-softened. It can be really helpful for that. I mean, that's kind of the main thing I think of when I think about the ways fermentation can help us preserve um, our fuel. But again, I mean, if we think about, let's say that I want to eat vegetables, but I have, you know, I like beets being a good example, like eating raw beets, you can do it. You have to slice them pretty thin, right? And like, you know, it's a bit of a process. And if you don't have a mandolin or the knife skills, they're going to be pretty big and unpleasant to eat. Um, And so a lot of people will cook them or pickle them or whatever. But if you pickle them, either fermented or quick pickled, um, Yeah, then you're saving yourself the cooking energy of, say, making steamed or boiled beets or roasted beets or whatever. So it's just, yeah, it really really helps you make food that is palatable and delicious, but not um, heavy on energy consumption. That's great. And I know some, some people get concerned around their sodium intake and, you know, because we talk about using salt to ferment things. Um, but the level of salt necessary is not always crazy high. And in fact, it's probably, you know, at the same level, if not lower than the salts that we find in most of our processed foods. Like, can you comment a little bit on that? And like, what's the role of salt in a lot of these like lactic acid fermentations? Yeah. So salt basically is there to create uh, a selective environment. So it's making it so that many microbes don't don't really want to interact with much salt. And so it really helps 
you know, different molds and things like that from being able to grow, provided that you keep your food, again, under that brine. So that's one part of it. Um, I mean, another aspect, yeah, is the salt. It's between 2 and 5% uh, salt is what you use. Like in So in that whole container of pickles, there's really not that much salt. You know, there's, I don't know, maybe a tablespoon. Um, depending on the size of the jar. So it's really not a crazy amount of salt in there. And, you know, something else to remember is that because the fermentation process itself brings in so much flavor, it's one of those ways that you can help satisfy some of that craving for, like, the strong flavor that salt gives and that sort of, like, bringing out all these different flavors, you know, fermentation and, like, you know, if we also think about like umami heavy ferments, so like soy sauce has salt in it, but it has so much flavor that you don't need to use as much of it as if you were sprinkling just salt. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you're, you're, the microbes are really transforming. They're pulling out a lot of those secondary metabolites from the, the plant and fungal ingredients and, you know, integrating that. And I also like to think about, especially for these live ferments, you know, um, you're really also getting the probiotics from, from those. I mean, everyone's kind of heard of, you know, eating live yogurt is, is good. Although I think that most of us miss the point of the industrially produced yogurt that's full of sugar and like sweeteners and, and jams. That's actually not good for you. That's like kind of like eating candy. Okay. <laughs> I eat candy. Yes. You know, but I don't eat candy thinking it's healthy for me. And a lot of those, you know, if you're going to get the real benefit of, of a, of a, you know, an active yogurt, it really needs to be without all those other things that in some ways negate some of those health health benefits. And you can make yogurt so easily at home. I mean, it's like you really, what do you need? Like a spoon of, of a, of a live culture basically to get things started. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just, you have, you know, you pasteurize your milk, you cool it down to slightly warmer than room temperature, stir in your little bit of culture. And yeah, then you just keep it, you know, slightly above room temperature. What is it like you know, 90, 95 degrees, something like that. Um, overnight i mean i've never tried it but i know that like my instant pot has a yogurt setting even um i've heard that it works i usually just make it by keeping my oven off and turning the pilot light on or the oven light on and in the morning i have yogurt it's super super easy that's really easy yeah and and as you know to your point about around gadgets there are lots of expensive gadgets for yogurt making and that's fine if you if you like that, but you can also literally a jar <laughs> and, a spoon, yeah. and a spoon, you know, of, of the previous culture. You don't have to buy fancy starters. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I started when I started making yogurt. I literally just bought like some organic plain yogurt from the grocery store and took a spoonful of it and was just like, all right, let's give this a try and. I mean, it's still going about two decades later, so I guess it must have worked. <laughs> I think it worked pretty well. <laughs> pretty well. That's great. Well, one of my favorite ferments that we make at home is something we call Dr. Q's Woo Sauce, because I started making this as part of my food and health class. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but it's like mm-hmm. we take, um, you know, some hot chilies, some habaneros, um, some, some different kind of red chilies, and basically ferment that with some garlic and just a brine 
let that go. And literally all I do is I blend it up and then I add a, um, I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's like a, a little bit of this powder you can get online that kind of keeps things in, you know, dispersed. So it doesn't mm-hmm. always settle out. And when we eat this hot sauce, there's just all these live microbes in there that are good for you, good for your gut. So it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. And it's like my, you know, my healthy taco sauce. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. love it. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, and that's something I love about fermented food is like, yeah, it's like so good. Like you want to eat it and it's like mm-hmm. so good for you. Like, it's like, I don't know. It's like such a gift to be able to get these foods and make these foods and share them because it's just like yeah. they're so special and tasty. Um, yeah, big fan. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I love I love this going to gifts too. Is I love this um, tradition of like giving, sharing microbes. You know, sharing mm-hmm. the scoby from you know when you're making your kombucha because it's always making more of it. So like everyone's always giving that away. Yeah. Or, or your um, your sourdough mix you know the the sourdough starter and i'm definitely so for the listeners that didn't know this already julia and sander Katz are actually going to be leading an amazing workshop at the society for economic botany and ethnobiology conference um it's an all-day workshop um i've taken their workshop before i loved it so much and I, i'm i'm kind of hosting somebody running around all over campus but don't be surprised if i don't like sneak in for a little bit of your awesome <laughs> It's just, it's just so, it's such an amazing way to learn about how to get more health value out of your foods. And, you know, I know you also have these great online classes. So for folks that aren't able to come to think events in person, um, Julia, what can you share with us about your online classes and where people can find that info? So if you go to my website, which is root-kitchens.com, or if you go to my social media, it's linked, um, in the usual, you know, link in bio places. Um, so I have the class that is most popular is the food waste class. And so that mm-hmm. goes through, it's a lot of fermentation cause it's me, but there's other stuff too. There's dehydrating. There's some like natural dyes and inks that you can make with like your food scraps. Um, you know, like uh, onion peels being one of the most famous ones. Um, and yeah, so that one, um, that one is up there. There's just some kind of basic fermentation classes. There's this one I really like uh, called Rooted in Place that's thinking about mm-hmm. like the wild plants and wild microbes where you live and how you can use those to kind of create ferment specific to where you are. Um, that's something I find really fun to do. Um, yeah. Kind of a big part of my practice. Um, yeah, and I've got some other stuff that will be coming out either later this year or next year uh kind of depending on when i when i get everything uh wrapped up with it but um so i'll have i'm gonna have some more classes that are on like uh food writing and kind of that side of things and then also on uh research and like doing the actual food writing research because i get a lot of questions about that yeah well and you also i know so in addition you've got your book um which is incredible our fermented lives available booksellers everywhere for folks that are interested and we'll also put a link into the um into the show notes for the episode but you also write a regular um a regular Substack newsletter which i subscribe to and enjoy very much awesome so, yeah so can you um share 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 a little bit about that like and, and i think you actually have a, a fun offer for people interested in the newsletter yeah so i have um so the 
there is a free version and a paid version. Um, and so, yeah, if folks sign up with the link um, that is down there um, or the code Ethnobot, uh, they get two months of the paid version free if they want to see what it, what all it is I do. And that one tends to have more recipes. You get um, somewhat more frequent newsletters. It's mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun. People really like it. And I I started the newsletter specifically talking about the histories of different foods um and then i started to move into more fermentation so i used to have it on mailchimp and then i moved mm -hmm. it over to substack and when i did that move i was like maybe i want this to just kind of be more of my playground for thinking about food um more holistically and so i'll have you know like i traveled to alaska last year and thought about you know how how connecting to place with food both changes and remains the same no matter where we are and like you know so i had things like that but then i'll also be like and here's another issue that's like my favorite dressing recipe or something so it's awesome. like really broad <laughs> that's great no that i love that about substat because it does allow so much um creative freedom and again for the listeners it's rootkitchens.substack.com slash ethnobot to get your free two-month version of the paid version of, of Julia's Substack. And, um, I just, I, I, I just mentioned, um, I also recently moved my, my newsletter from my website to Substack and I've really had fun and it's, 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 you know, it's given me interesting things to think about, you know, responding more to like current events. Like for example, this week, um, there, there was this crazy thing on TikTok happening. And I mean, when is something crazy not happening on TikTok? But you know, about about dragon fruit and people having intense bowel reactions to this. And it's like, wow. So I did the science. I looked into it. It's like, well, they may have a food allergy. It's not, it's not a natural, you know, healthy laxative. It's actually probably not great for them to be eating that if you have that reaction. So mm -hmm. it's like kind of a strange example, but it, it does give the flexibility to kind of play around with ideas and kind of respond to things that are happening in the moment, which, mm -hmm. which is cool. And uh, yeah. 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 No, it's a great platform. I, I was skeptical when a lot of people started moving over to it. I was like, I don't know if this is going to be better than using kind of whatever else, but mm -hmm. I really like it. It's, yeah. and it's easy to use too, which is nice. Yeah. Well, that's nice. You can put all of your energy and time into like blowing up blueberries in your kitchen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Redecorating. Here we go. <laughs> all right. So for all the listeners out there, here's your challenge for the week. You know, check out some of these cool fermented recipes. You can find them on Julia's newsletter. You can also find them in her book. Um, lots of fun things to try, whether you're interested in trying to make your own sauerkraut for the first time or your own yogurt. Or if you'd like to, you know, try something with, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, um, fermented fruit juices. Like there's just, yeah. just fermented grains. There's there's a lot to play with, and you know, you can really get some cool flavors um, happening in your in your in your kitchen. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Always, always want people to ferment more food. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Julia. It was great to see you. And I'll see you again in person in June. Yay. Yeah. Thank yeah. you again for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. 
All right, guys, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the Food Curious, recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. We are now in season five of the show. Super excited to be um, still with you all. And you can help us keep the show going by supporting the podcast. There's a couple ways you can do that. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and click on those five stars. That would be great. Five, not one, five stars. (laughs) And uh, give us five star rating and maybe a comment or two. That really helps us get get the word out to a broader audience. You can also head over to um, Buy Me a Coffee. Um, that's a great little platform. You can, you know, spend what you would spend um, on your morning coffee with a small donation to the podcast, and it helps us um, with our production costs. Or you can get some cool swag. We have a lot of, um, oh gosh, of t-shirts and coffee cups and cool bags that have the Foodie Pharma Pharmacology um, logo on it. You can check those out at mysterycontrol.com. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, everybody, and I'll see you next time.